Hey guys, you're listening to Metal Matters, a weekly gimme radio podcast. I'm your host, Mike Hill. If you like metal, punk, hardcore, or anything extreme, you've come to the right place. So subscribe and never miss out. Before we get rolling, I just want to thank everyone who's been listening and sharing this on their social media. Definitely appreciate all that. This week we have songwriter and guitarist Nate Garrett. Nate has had a busy year so far. The new Spirit Adrift record came out earlier this year. The new Gate Creeper record has dropped by the time this episode is live. And he has returned from a European tour and is ready to embark on a U.S. tour. Oddly enough, Nate and I probably should have met years ago, but it was through this podcast that we actually met for the first time, so it was pretty cool. Anyway, onward to the episode. You just got back from a European tour with uh, Sanhedrin, a band that I'm a huge fan of, and also our common friend Jeremy Sosville plays in that band, and uh, Jeremy was uh, a guest a little while back and uh, I guess he is the integral reason why you and I are actually speaking so how was that tour you know, Europe, Europe is always uh, a lot of fun yeah it was incredible man um, I had been once before with Gate Creeper and uh, a lot of factors were working against us that time and, and it was kind of brutal so um, you know we weren't sure what to expect this time around but um yeah, St. Hedron were great tourmates. Uh, Jeremy and I in particular have a lot in common. We're kind of like small town dudes and really into country and chicken picking and uh, that sort of thing, Blackfoot and stuff like that. Um, so it was it was nice to have really solid tourmates. And then our guy in Europe, our, our agent, was also tour managing, driving, and selling, just kind of handling everything. His name's Bruno. And, uh, that helped out so much. I mean, every, every other series of drift tour we've done, I've split the driving duties with a couple of the other guys and I did merch and basically help tour manage and book the rooms and stuff. And, uh, it's a lot to handle. And so this was a, the first tour that, <laughs> my only real responsibilities were to load gear and to show up and play when it was time to play. And that's it. And it was just like, it, it lit a whole new fire for me, man. It was, it was probably my favorite tour I've ever done. Yeah. There's a lot of logistical details about touring Europe. And, um, I personally wouldn't even want to begin getting involved in setting any of that stuff <laughs> up. And when we, when, when I've been to yeah. Europe, I just, uh, basically load gear, play and like sit in the van drive I, I don't do any of the driving i just i'm a passenger but you know in the states i do quite a bit of the driving but uh but yeah the um sanhedrin tournament you know you guys coupled with sanhedrin is is cool because though you both bands are different i listen to spirit adrift and it's like an updated version of like a classic heavy metal kind of thing um, you know, there's like you know, clean vocals. Uh, the guitar work is um, reminiscent of, uh, you know, like Yuli Roth and like Michael Schenker and that sort of stuff. Uh, 
am oh, I like cool. on, Thanks, am I like on, <laughs> am I on point with that or am I completely uh, you know out, out in left field but when I say that no you're on point man um it's funny the the other guy that has always hammered me with the scorpions thing is uh Stavros from the Atlas Moth oh yeah he's yeah. like everybody says your guitar harmonies are thin Lizzy harmonies but they're scorpions harmonies um so yeah you're you're pretty accurate, man. I, it's really just um, over the years, you know, I've, I'm always listening to all kinds of different music. Uh, and some bands, I had periods where I really enjoyed their music and then periods where the interest kind of faded away. Uh, and I think what Spirit Adrift is, is just kind of a melting pot of all the bands that have have stayed relevant to me my whole life, uh, which I don't think it's a coincidence that they're all kind of like the classic bands. Those are the bands that have the staying power uh, in the history. They're like the, the bigger picture of music and also to me personally. So uh, bands like, you know, Black Sabbath, Early Metallica, Slayer, Trouble, Thin Lizzy, Priest, Scorpions. I've been listening to a lot of Scorpions lately, especially I... I never really dove that deep into their catalog, but I, I have been in the last couple of years. So that's definitely coming in. Um, even bands like Typo Negative, uh, there's this stuff that, that I've listened to regularly since the first time I heard it. And that's the stuff I think that, that ends up being in spirit of drift. Um, and then inevitably, whoever you are, if you're worth a shit, your, your influences are going to, um, be diluted through your own filter, your, your personality, your, your mind, you know? So, yeah, I think it's all the stuff that, <clears throat> that has lasted for me personally, uh, thrown into a melting pot and filtered through my fucked up brain, you know? Yeah, totally. The, uh, for me, I, I always focus on the Yuli John Roth era of, of the Scorpions, you know, like the post-Michael Schenker, uh, pre-Matthias uh, Yab version of the band. That's 70s Hendrix, cla- like weird Hendrix classical music kind of thing that, that Yuli was doing during that period. I love that stuff, man. In fact, I think when I was like 19, I was living in Arkansas, I... I don't even know how to say the name of the song, but Sales of Charon, Charon? Oh, yeah, Sales of Charon, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, yeah, that song. I uh, I made, made it my life's mission there for a minute to learn that intro solo, and I did. I mean, I was, like, stumbling my way through it. But, um, yeah, Louis Roth has been a, a huge influence for a while. That's awesome, man. And, you know, I got to call attention to the reference you made to Blackfoot earlier, which is a band that not a lot of people cite in any particular way at all, man. That's a band that I, I really enjoyed the, uh, was it Strikes? And I think yes. Marauder was the other one they had. Yeah. I mean, I know they yes. have many and there's more records. Another one, there's another one in there called Tomcat with like the Panther on the front. But those three to me are like, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's um. There was that period of time. It seems like kind of like the southern, like really heavy southern rock was like a thing. And uh, I, I mean, I was like a little kid when that stuff was around. So 
I think it was like the late 70s, early 80s, where you'd have bands like Blackfoot, you know, Molly Hatchet, and, uh, you know, even even early 38 Special was kind of like in that vibe before they went straight up like radio music, you know what I mean? Right, yeah, and it all, dude, it all comes from the blues, and I think um, as far as that particular branch of that, you know, it's obvious that Leonard Skinner jump-started that whole thing. Yeah. Um, and, dude, Skin- I-, I love Blackfoot, but, you know, to me, they're just kind of like a continuation of, of Leonard Skinner, and I don't think there's many bands that have the the success ratio of Leonard Skinner pre-plane crash. I mean, that's like five just world-beating albums in a row, you know? I love that stuff. Yeah, totally, man. Uh, I think it's funny. Their output is relatively small, too. It's like, I think they only have like 30 songs or something like that. So, Leonard Skinner? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the the plane crash, they were... Yeah. I mean, I feel like they probably should have just not been a band after the plane crash. Exactly. But, you know, that's none of my business. But they, they haven't really made a lot of original material since then. Um, and I haven't really heard any of it, I don't think. Um, but yeah, pre-plane crash, that's, that band was just untouchable. Spirit of Drift started as a solo project, basically. Is that correct? That is correct, yeah. Um, I had been playing in bands for quite a while. I mean, I, was, I started playing in bands when I was 13. Um, and then I was... 27 when I when I started fiddling around with the spirit of drift stuff and I had uh I'd gone through periods where I was putting everything into playing music and touring and really just like betting the farm on it uh I I had experienced everything from that mindset to like sort of quitting and trying other things and invariably that never worked I always was drawn back uh, so I think by the time that I, I started fooling around with the spirit of your stuff, I was kind of tired of touring. I was kind of even tired of playing in bands. So I was just, uh, I think my, my goal was to figure out a way to continue to make music because I, I had learned through experience that there was, I didn't, there was no way I was going to just step away from music. I just couldn't live that way. Uh, so I, I think, yeah, I was trying to figure out a way where I could continue to make music that was really important to me, but avoid, um, all the frustrations and aggravations and just soul crushing things I had had to deal with playing in bands. Um, and I, originally I was going to have, uh, somebody else play drums on the early stuff, but then I was kind of like, well, why don't I just go all the way? I had played some drums before. Uh, it had been years, but I, I just kind of got my chops back up and just did everything on my own. Yeah. That's uh, my understanding is that you played all the instruments on the early material. And uh, I'm always uh, impressed by that, man. Cause that's, I, I can't play drums at all. And I, and it's not through lack of trying. Cause uh, in the beginning, <laughs> of when I wanted to start playing rock music, like when I was like a young kid, I actually, there was a guy up the street who was like a very accomplished drummer. And I, I my parents you know, paid for some lessons too. And uh, 
I just never was able to really get the hang of using all four limbs doing something different. And, um, you know, I still try to play drums, but to no avail. And I just moved on to other things. And, you know, that's always been my, uh, my admiration for people who can play all the instruments by themselves. And that's really cool. Drums are crazy, man. It's, it's a whole different thing. Um, when I was a kid, I, I think I had like, cause I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma. And I think at this point in my life, I had stopped going to church. I definitely knew church was like, not for me at this point, but the church that I had been going to, got this cool youth minister dude who looked like Bono. And uh, he, for whatever reason, we got connected, even though I wasn't you know, Christian, I wasn't like going to church or anything. I was like 16. Um, Cause I remember I had a driver's license, but I somehow wound up getting the keys to this church basement where they had some drums set up. They had like a youth band and I, I don't know why they gave me the keys to the church but they did and so i would just go to this church like whenever i wanted and go in the basement and go sit at this drum set and try to learn slayer and pantera songs in a presbyterian church basement so (laughs) i had a a little bit of a leg up um and i actually played some shows like with this church band and i think maybe i even got paid uh and it was really just for the love of learning a new instrument you know it had nothing to do with love for jesus or anything like that that's for sure uh, but yeah i just i i remembered a few of the fundamentals and i had a little bit of mus- muscle memory laying around because i think when you're that age you're so whether it's like boxing or muay thai or guitar or learning another language i think your brain is so malleable that it's just easier to to learn something at that age so i'm fortunate i was able to tinker around a little bit in my teens, you know? Yeah, that's true. You can learn a lot easier, but I also believe that if you continue to learn through life, you kind of maintain that level of malleability as you you know put it, which is a really good term for that. Um, you know, if you're always challenging yourself with things throughout life, I feel like you still can learn new things. But if you're one of those people who I- just okay, this is all I need to know to make my uh, $20 an hour or whatever. I'm just going to like stick here and do this and just get fucked up on booze every weekend. Then, yeah, you're not going to be able to learn anything. You know what I mean? I like that. I, I like that concept for sure. I agree, definitely. Yeah. So how long did it take you to, um, like when you conceptualize the idea of Spirit Adrift, to write, record, and put together some sort of body of work that you were going to put out there to release to people. Like how long was that process? Like a couple of years, a year, you know? Oh man. Uh, I, it's funny. I have dates. Um, just kind of arbitrarily to, to remind me of the timeline of when everything happened. So I got sober on March 4th, 2015. And I was in the studio recording the first EP in May. Um, and then I was back in the studio in October recording the first full length. So it was just like immediate. Yeah. It was really bizarre. Now you mentioned, and it took a while for, for that stuff to come out, but that's, 
that was the timeline on my end was just like weeks, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was fucking really weird how, how fast the stuff was coming out, you know. Now you mentioned your sobriety. Does that, did that play into any of the concepts or the, you know, how did that fit into this whole thing? You know? Oh man, it's, um, inseparable. Uh, the, I mean, the lyrical themes and the vibe of the early stuff is, is a hundred percent a product of that experience. And, uh, as far as the, the music, I mean, that part's inseparable as well because I had kind of been, I'd been stuck in some kind of block, like mental block. I mean, I, the way I was abusing my mind and body, like I, I could barely function in, in any capacity, much less any sort of artistic capacity. But I mean, as soon as I got my body detoxed, it was like somebody broke open a dam and it just all this stuff was there it was like it was just waiting to to be let out you know that's awesome now the the transition into an actual live band like how long did that take you know what i mean like like you started this thing out it's just you playing all the instruments you're recording um was there any expectation that this would ever be a touring operating band Absolutely not. It, I, I didn't know what I was doing <laughs> at all. I, I had no expectations of anything. I, you know, at first I was going to record the songs and not do anything with them, just have them for myself. Um, it's like the material just opened all these doors that I wasn't even thinking about opening. Um, as far as putting a live band together, I know our first show was in May of the next year of 2016 but i think we started practicing late 2015 i got an email uh from walter at roadburn at some point in there uh you know asking about the band and actually no i'm i'm screwed up our first live show was may of 2017 okay uh because yeah like i said the I got the stuff all done in 2015, but it didn't come out until 2016. Like the full length, it was a year between when I recorded it and when it came out. Uh, so I guess the live band started jamming in 2016, probably late 2016, uh, because Walter from Roadburn hit me up and he had some interest in us playing. And that was like beyond any of my wildest expectations when I recorded those songs. Um, so I really wanted to do that. And unfortunately, logistically, it didn't pan out that year, but I'm very grateful that he sent me that email because, you know, putting the band together kind of changed my life. I mean, it didn't kind of change. It completely changed my life. My life has changed completely because of Spirit of Drift. Like what, what ways? I mean, uh, you know, that's a pretty uh, heavy statement, you know? Yeah, it's, uh, well, just literally, I mean, like the, my daily activities, my monthly and yearly activities, just the way that my life looks. Um, but more importantly than that, like, you know, when you first get sober, when you're just running yourself into the ground and, and 
feeling such a low self-worth for so many years. It's a process trying to acquire or earn any kind of legitimate um, self-confidence and self-worth and self-value and, and that sort of thing. And I think this band has expedited that process significantly for me. Um, seeing And also, like, putting this kind of music out there that's so deeply personal and, and relating to just kind of the struggle of life and seeing what it can do for other people, having that come back to me. I mean, it's just, uh, I've said this in, in other conversations about the band. It's like for most of my life, I was stuck in this self-perpetuating cycle of negativity, just violence and anger and self-loathing and just like, every bad thing you can feel. And at some point it reversed itself. And now it's this cycle of helping myself and helping others and lifting people up and lifting myself up and positivity and kindness. And, and I like that a lot more, you know, I had some good times in the negative cycle too, but it's, it's just not, it wasn't, that's no way to live on a long-term basis, you know? Yeah, I could totally uh, relate to that. Um, some of the ideas, I kind of play around with the ideas of, uh, you know, demons, for example. And, um, you know, there's like the literal idea that there's these embodiments of evil, these physical entities out there. Or there's like a more sort of cerebral idea that if you meditate in this kind of negative space and you in, in, indulge in negative sort of things, it opens a doorway and these demons are actually within yourself. You know what I mean? Like you're, they're self-perpetuating. And, and that's, I, I, I sort of like to think about a lot of that stuff too. And, um, and yeah, that's, I think that's, that's some of the same things we're talking about here. You know, you, you create this Definitely. void for yourself to live in, you know? Well, it's interesting you say demons too, and the concept of being possessed. I, when I think of alcohol, sometimes for me, I'm not making this statement for anyone else on the planet, but it that shit for me is like a demon, literally. Like it, there's something in it that that interacts with my genetics, and it's like I was possessed. You know, I was in the grips of this like demonic possession. That's what it. That's what it felt like sometimes. Yeah, I've, I've heard people refer to that in a similar fashion, definitely. Um, so back with the band, going from a solo thing, now you're inviting players into the practice space to learn the material. And how was that the first few times? If you have all this material that you created yourself, tracked it, and now there's like other people involved and in adding their sort of fiber to that sort of um you know ag aggregate of your ideas like what's well, how are your feelings about that well you want the situation to play out a certain way and and that ideal way is that everybody gets in the room and they've all practiced and everyone knows everything and you play and you just fucking nail the first song and you're halfway through you're like whoa it's um you're looking at each other like can't believe it 
and it didn't play out that way. <laughs> it never uh, does. Man. It never does. <laughs> no, man. Hell no. So, uh, you know, it wasn't bad, uh, but it took a little bit of work. Um, it even took a little bit of work to find the right people. Uh, and and once once all the right people were involved, then it was like, okay, it felt different. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just work, man. There's no... There's no easy way around any of this. There's no easy way around anything. I'm preaching the choir on that. But, um, yeah, we just practice and practice and practice. And, uh, you know, especially on the, the early stuff, the first album, there's because I never intended to play any of it live. So I was just like having a field day in the studio with <laughs> overdubs, yeah. you know, yeah, guitar harmonies and vocal harmonies. And again, I feel like you can probably understand some of that. Uh, and so once we got in a room with four people, part of the process was solving the riddle of how are we going to translate this to this live band that only has four people when we would need probably like 16 people to play some of this stuff accurately. Uh, so that was fun. And it's cool. You know, you, you have bands to, uh, to look at for help on that matter because there's plenty of bands in the past that have just layered stuff up on their albums and then live they just you know instead of there being four acoustic guitars and two clean electrics and this and that maybe they just play the lead harmonies or something like that right right yeah it it took a little bit um like i said earlier i think we started practicing in late 2016 uh and then played our first show yeah, May of, of 2017 with Paul there uh, and Gate Creeper was also on that show. And it went really well. I, you know, I, I have been pleased with, with everything the band has done so far. And that was kind of, um, that was a, uh, a rule almost that I had from the beginning. I was like, this band isn't going to do anything unless we do it right and unless we do it well. And, it needs to mean something. It needs to be cool. And we haven't broken that rule yet. So that's, it's great. Has uh, the lineup been more or less consistent or is it like wildly different people from record to record? Well, it was the same. Uh, the live lineup was the same up until recently. Um, our other guitar player, Jeff had to step away after this last U S tour that we did in the summer. And Eric from Gate Creeper was just right there. I mean, he's one of my favorite people in the world, and he's one of the best guitar players, probably the best guitar player I've ever played with. Uh, so he stepped up and and took over for the European tour. We have a couple more shows, a couple festivals this year, so he's going to handle that. Uh, and then at the beginning of the year, we're, we're I think we're going to reevaluate um, and potentially have just separate live players on call for each band um that's something we've been talking about because both bands have had to turn down stuff that would just break your heart you know and i think it's time we started just really taking advantage of every opportunity that we're given yeah that's uh i i, I see where you're going with that because that's uh, a, a concept that i'm exploring currently too with like having just kind of more of like a collective of people that you're playing with and 
if, if someone can't do something, you bring the other guy in, but it's all kind of on the up and up and on the, on the table. You know what I mean? Yeah. I love that idea. You know, we're, um, it, people associate spirit of drift with gate creeper and vice versa. And that's it, really cool. And both bands have kind of elevated each other and they're, they're kind of inseparable. And we have this little group, you know, we started calling ourselves a gang, man. <laughs> like, it's just the the people that are involved, you know, and we're all really good friends first and foremost. I mean, you can't, you can't do all the things that we've done together and not form just this inseparable kind of bond, you know? So we're, we're just year by year. We've, we've just been trying to figure out how to make all this work. And, uh, so far so good. Yeah. Speaking of gate creeper, there's a record either, coming out or it has just come out i think by them right it's uh October. It just came out yeah yeah just came out uh friday and then you guys are leaving for tour soon right after this yeah um so this upcoming weekend spirit of drift is playing a festival uh, in sacramento like this one of those big energy type of things which is cool i think that'll break us into a whole new world that we're not familiar with um, but then after that, the gate creeper machine is firing up. We got a, two album release shows, one in LA, one in Phoenix. Um, that's the 25th and 26th, I think. And then the tour starts on Halloween in Austin. And that's with exhumed Necrot and our friends from Texas judiciary. Nice. Yeah, Exhumed is awesome, man. I've been a huge fan of those guys for years. Same. Yeah, we, we love all of those bands. So yeah. it's it's really cool. It's it's a trip to be on such a solid package right out of the gate coming off the album, you know. So that leads me to ask how I mean this year, twenty nineteen, both bands had releases and uh you know, how, how do you manage all that, man? That's, that's like a pretty stiff uh, schedule to keep, uh, keep under control. Yeah. yeah, it's tricky. Um, it, it's been possible so far because, you know, I'm spending phys- a lot of physical energy on Gate Creeper, but not a lot of mental energy because Chase and Eric write basically all of that stuff. <clears throat> and then vice versa. I write all the drift stuff. And, um, you know, I even handle like most of the instruments and stuff in the, in the studio, Marcus, his drums. Uh, but that, you know, spirit of drift is pretty much my thing, me and Marcus. And then gate creeper is pretty much chase and Eric's thing. Uh, as far as the creative aspect. Of it. So it, it's worked thus far, but you know, as I said earlier, I, we've been talking about, setting up the situation where we know for sure that if, if both fans happen to get a really good offer at the same time, that neither will have to turn that offer down. So what that looks like, we'll see. Um, but again, it's just a matter of logistics. It's, there's no, no drama or nothing, nothing bad about it. It's a, it's a good problem to have, you know, to be in two bands that are, popular enough that you know you're getting conflicting offers yeah it could be worse definitely (laughs) (laughs) 
I've, yeah. I've lived the, the other side of things and <laughs> I like this way. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that Jeremy said that you and I have in common is uh, our love for martial arts. So do you, uh, do you train at all? I, yeah, I started training boxing, uh, not, not for a long time, just I think in June, I've been wanting to get into it for a long time. Um, I want to get into jujitsu as well. My friend Maria took me to a, uh, to Daniel Gracie's dojo actually when I was in New York. Um, and I, I, I knew like even just doing it once, I was like, if I start doing this, it's going to take over, you know? Yeah. And that's been my experience with the boxing training too. Um, I'm a huge fan of the Diaz brothers. So I kind of, I re- sort of romanticized the idea of like, not doing any mixed martial arts training and just doing boxing and jujitsu, which are, you know, their fortes. Although I saw that, you know, after Nate does all kinds of MMA training, I saw he's got like a Muay Thai instructor and stuff like that. But yeah, um, yeah I'm just, I'm fascinated by the whole thing and I love it. And uh, you train. Yeah, I, 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 I do. mean, I, I know you do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, definitely a huge part of my week is uh, making it down to the gym. And mostly these days, I'm only training Muay Thai right now. I've I taken a break from uh, grappling just from uh, injuries and, you know, recovery and all that. I got like all kinds of joint problems as a result of grappling. And, uh, you know, it's funny you would think that a sport where you're getting punched in the face and kicked in the ribs and all that sort of stuff would lead to more injuries, but I find that grappling is like destroying my joints right now. So, you know, I'm just taking a little break from that. But uh, yeah, that is interesting. Um, I I was kind of worried about uh, when I started the boxing training, like I was worried about what it was going to do to my arms and my hands and this and that, and um, I had been like kind of powerlifting for a year or two before that. But we went on tour with Cannibal Corpse and some of those dudes, their crew got me into powerlifting, deadlifts and shit. Oh, yeah. And I, I had been doing that for a while. And I was just like sore all the time. And when I was getting into the boxing thing, I was like, man, I hope this doesn't like hurt my forearms, my shoulders, or whatever. And I found that since I started doing it, I have been like, my mobility has been so much better. I've been less sore. I've, there's something about those motions, I think, that's good for your your mobility and your flexibility. At least that's that's been my experience. I actually feel better. Yeah, I, I have to agree with that. And uh, the thing about lifting, and especially doing heavy lifts, and because uh, I, I like to lift weights too, but I don't I don't do it like like maybe one day a week I'll go and, and lift weights. And uh, it's always it's always something like powerlifting like that, like uh, deadlifts and squats and kettle, or kettlebells. But what happens is I think that you build up certain muscles, but you don't build up the other side, like the negative, you know what I mean? And that's why you're, I, th- I feel like you're sore all the time when you do that stuff. And, um, you know, we had a uh, seminar with uh, Arthur Klashenko, who um, – you know, he used to fight in glory, and I think he's going to one FC right now. He uh, he did a striking seminar at the gym, and he stressed – like, he doesn't lift weights at all, and this guy's, like, jacked, basically. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm, saying, yeah, I'm like, I assume he's just, like, this tough-looking and, like, Russian guy, you know? And he was saying that 
he doesn't do any weightlifting, but what he does is all of his body weight stuff that he does. It's one, it's like the negative and the positive and like he conditions like everything the equally so that if you're tired, the muscles that aren't conditioned, aren't stealing oxygen from the muscles that are in condition. So I think a lot of that keeping everything balanced is how you avoid being sore. You know what I'm trying to say? And that's why like, yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. It makes sense when you think about it, there's like this practicality to it, you know? And, uh, and that's, um, I've been, I've been thinking about that a lot. Just like you do one motion, you got to do the opposite one. So it's all in balance, you know? And I get sore, but it's, uh, I think a lot of it's like recovery and diet and all that kind of stuff. Not getting enough protein, not getting enough sleep, like those kinds of things play into it as well. Sure. So do you watch the fights as well? hundred percent. Yeah. I'm, the only thing that I have an obsession level with that is strong enough to take my mind away from music temporarily. <laughs> do you watch last night's fights? I did, man. Yeah, I was, I was, uh, I had grown. Hey, you there? Yep, yep, I'm here, man. No problem. Uh, Not you, sure what happened. There. Yeah, no, you know, it's it's uh, the, the limitations of technology sometimes. <laughs> so I when I said, uh, did you watch the fights last night? That's basically right where you cut out. So if you want to pick it up from there. Okay, sure. Yeah, um, I did watch the fights last night. I in the the lead up to the the main event, I had grown pretty attached to Robert Whitaker. Um, I just like how low key he is. There's something scary in his eyes. Uh, and I just, I like that he doesn't talk shit and he's, you know, shows up wearing a suit. I, I got, I'm partial to that. Kind of reminds me of like uh, Joe Frazier or somebody like that. Um, and I love Israel Adesanya. I respect him a lot. He's obviously like a very exceptional human being, but I've grown pretty tired of the, uh, <laughs> the redundant, like often self-sabotaging like UFC hype machine with these guys where they just get sucked up into the, the hype. I, I just, I feel like that's backfired so many times that they should have learned just to let these guys be and kept, like the whole dance routine coming out. I could have done without all that. Oh yeah, me. man. I, I like cringed when I saw that. I was like, <laughs> it was like, so incredibly just like douchey i thought yeah definitely and and he doesn't need that man no. um and you look at the best fighters like my wife and i, I my wife is just a in the main fan by proxy she has just been forced to watch so many fights and she she actually likes it at this point but um she was like you know was was anderson silva like that when he was coming up it's like no um he, like george st pierre was he like that no uh, even somebody like John Jones, you know, he's got his myriad of issues and stuff, but 
with the exception of the Corbinier fight, he was never really like this loud, shit-talking guy leading up to the fights. If you watch his post-fight interviews, he's very open and honest and critical of himself. And, and I just think that that whole hype thing has never worked out in the favor of the organization or the fighter. You know, it always backfires. I'm just kind of sick of it at this point. Yeah, I, I agree. And, uh, yeah, the hype machine is uh, definitely something that is – it sets these guys up, and if they get – if they if they lose, it, it makes the fall, like, even that much further, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, it's um, – it was pretty obvious who the organization wanted to win that fight last night, I thought, you know. And it's, oh, it always is. It's, it's gross, man. Sometimes I feel like they – they script out certain things for the commentators to focus on too. You know, I don't think the comment commentating is like scripted per se, but I, it's almost like you'll watch a fight with the commentary on. And if it's some new upstart prospect, they can be getting worked, but the commentators just keep talking about how great they are. It's, it's really bizarre, man. Um, and then you watch the same fight, you turn the commentary off and it's just obvious that person is losing. So, I, I don't pretend to understand the inner workings of the UFC or anything like that, but I, I, I like a guy like Habib so much because, well, for one thing, he kind of derailed the whole general trend of the shit talking, trying to hype yourself up thing when he smashed Connor. Yeah. Uh, and then also like, I understand how easy it is and how susceptible these people are to being, swept into the hype and buying their own hype and having it change them. Like fame changes people, you know, but he, Khabib in particular just seems to be like immune to that. Yeah. I just think that he lives in a society that we just can't even relate to either, man. And, uh, yeah, you know, and it's just that world is a completely different world, but a whole different set of values. And, and even, you know, like it wasn't a game to him that, build up and all the negative stuff that happened. And, and when he jumped over the fence to, to go after Dylan Dennis, I was just like, yeah, that's, that's, it's, it's not just a game to that guy, you know? Yeah. They didn't understand who they were dealing with. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Yeah. And even Dylan Dennis, like that guy, um, like he was a blue belt when I was training at Marcelo Garcia's and really nice guy, but, if you saw him just through the media, you would have a completely different opinion about him. You know? Sure. Yeah. And, and, and I hear the same thing about your favorite fighter, Colby Covington. Too. Like, <laughs> That's everyone's favorite, man. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I get that, like, you know, who am I to tell these guys how to act when they're, they're making a living in one of the most brutal ways imaginable. And, if you can talk some shit and fast track yourself to getting more money for your future and your family's future, I do understand that. But do I think it's totally necessary? I think there's other ways of doing it, honestly. Yeah, I think that you compromise yourself like to the point where that's it's like the use of irony, you know, it's like back in you know, this is like a different an, an analogy, if you will, like in the late nineties. Sure dude started wearing mustaches you know it's like ironic you know to <laughs> reference the tom Selleck like cop mustache and 
you know, it's, oh, yeah, this is like an ironic sort of move we're doing. But then eventually you just become a guy with a mustache. And I yeah. kind of feel that's, <laughs> that's what happened to Colby Covington. It's like he wants to ironically be this Trump supporter wearing a MAGA hat. And, but then he just became this white guy with a MAGA hat on. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, where do you draw the line? He's going on national TV talking about how much he loves Donald Trump. I yeah. mean, it's like he, even if you are playing a character, it's like you're not really. You're out there saying these things. Yeah. You know, you're putting this kind of energy out there. And some people definitely misunderstand that. And uh, I think a lot of problems can result from that without taking responsibility for it, you know? Definitely. Well, I want to say, too, in the mid middle of this MMA talk, I'm sure you've touched on this a million times, but all of this stuff is connected to me. And I, I saw the, the infamous quote on your, your website to know the way broadly is to see it in all things. And I love that um, because a lot of people might not see any connection between martial arts and music and artistic expression and stuff like that. But uh, for me, I've just realized that like, when my mind is like when my body is in better shape, my mind is in better shape. And when my mind is in better shape, I'm more in touch with my emotions. I'm more in touch with my inner self. I feel like, and then my music is better. And then my life is better. And then that's the, the positive feedback loop that I was talking about earlier. You know, it all, it all connects. It's all just equally important in my life. Um, so you know, again, there's some people that are like, why the fuck are these guys talking about martial arts? But, but that's why it's just as important to me as, as music. And I, I look up to these fighters probably even more than I look up to musicians because they're just so dedicated to what they're doing. Their level of dedication is like, you're not going to find that with most musicians, you know? That's true. That's true. And also the creativity aspect of it, too. I mean, it's like, you know, you can look at it as fighting, but you can also look at it as martial arts. And when you see a guy right. like John Jones out there expressing himself with his technique, to me, it's the same kind of uh, emotional impact as listening to, like, uh, you know, the Swans or something like that. There's like, yeah. you know, there, there's it's an expression. You know, everyone has the things that they, their, their avenues, like their methods, the media that they work in. And that's kind of like martial arts is also another media that you can use to express yourself, you know? Definitely. Man, I remember the first time seeing Anderson Silva. Oh yeah. It gave me, it gave me the same feeling of awe and respect and just admiration for such a mastery of something it was like the same feeling I got when I saw like Jimi Hendrix at yeah. Woodstock or something. You know? Oh yeah, like, definitely. This man. guy is like the Jimi Hendrix of kicking people's asses. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Because he was definitely uh, one of those people like Hendrix or like Eddie Van Halen or something like that, where the game changed. There was like pre and post Anderson Silva, in my opinion. Oh yeah. yeah. There was like every, you know, people prior to him, they weren't really using a lot of that like Muay Thai, like uh, clinching and, and, you know, knees and elbows and that kind of stuff, the way he was using it, you know, and his just elusiveness and his footwork and his, uh, you know, being a southpaw and like, 
utilizing all these like traditional martial arts skills that he had and the way he combined everything into like one thing that he did. And, um, and even like he continued to do that late into his career. Like even now that he's in the twilight of his career, he's like employing like these like Wing Chun techniques, which yeah, no one's like, I've never <laughs> seen anyone do that effectively in a, in a legit, you know, fight like before ever, you know? So, yeah. So he's like the Hendrix game changer sort of guy, you know, like before yeah. Hendrix, no one even imagined guitar playing could be like that. Right. And it's just all inspiring to watch them. You know, there's just this sense of, of childlike amazement and wonder when you, when you experience somebody like, and John Jones is another example. It, like when you watch him, it's as if he's operating on some plane of existence that like most people never experience. He, he's like locked in with his environment and his, his inner being on like a fucking molecular level or something. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I get the same sense of excitement and, and wonder from those guys as I do from any guitar player, drummer, anything the thing about john jones too is i've never seen anyone be so successful that doesn't throw strikes in combination you know what yeah, i mean like he's, he throws like single strikes it's not like combos i always found that that's like uh violating every rule like i ever learned about kickboxing you know what i mean it's, <laughs> it's like totally. not throwing a combo is like day one like the reason why you throw in combos because like only, you know, maybe one lands, but he's so accurate that he can pick exactly when to strike and it lands like in some high percentage, you know? Definitely. Israel is, is somewhat similar. I mean, I think he throws more combinations, but even last night I was, I felt like an idiot because I was in my infinite wisdom, like explaining to my wife, if Israel has one weakness, it's that he almost is, waits too long and is a little too picky about his shots. And then I thought, well, you know, he hasn't lost a fight. So is that a, is that a weakness? And almost the second I said it, he knocked Robert Whitaker out. Yeah. Let cook. I think that tendency though is, is um, only applies to other people. You know what I mean? Cause it's like, um, you know, most coaches want you to answer right away. Like when you're, yeah countering you know it's like otherwise like in the eyes of like a judges or whatever like the other guy gets too far ahead on points and all that so they want you always if someone throws a leg kick you got to answer with a punch or another leg kick or something like that so you're always like responding because when you stop responding the other guy who actually is scoring the points gets further and further ahead on the scorecards and the coach and the um the judges will be like well this guy's like starting to wane and we're going to sure. make this like uh you know put this in his favor so right so we got this tour coming up the new gate creeper record just uh came out as this is being recorded spirit adrift lp uh divided by darkness came out on 20 bucks spin back in may and uh so does that record seem old to you at all yeah i mean um seems like a lifetime ago that that came out and we're, I already have another one ready to go. We're recording a new album early next year. 
I'm not surprised, man, because it's like <laughs> a, lo- a lot of people, um, you know, they, they think the new record comes out and it's like, yeah, man, this is like some new material. But what most people don't understand is that when by the time it comes out, it's already been like, you know, part of the band's life for probably over a year. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think I started writing uh, at first. I don't remember. Yeah, I'd probably I'd probably worked on Divided by Darkness for a year year and a half before we went into the studio. Um, and that's just taking whatever free time I have to uh, chip away at it. You know, it's not like I was sitting there working on it for a year straight every day. Or anything. I mean, yeah. I thought about it every day for sure. Um, so yeah, it, it had been, been there for a while. And uh, dude, making that record took so much out of me. I, when we got done with, all the uh, kind of business end of things that happen after you're done recording, you know, all the interviews and just getting ready for the release and all that stuff. I told myself, like, okay, I'm not going to write for a while. I'm just going to take it easy. I'm like, I don't want to burn out. And then I would pick up a guitar just to like restring it or something or like practice the gate creeper set or, or whatever. And I would just like write, have a song. Yeah. And I was like, what the fuck is going on here? And before I knew it, you know, I, I was working on a new album. Um, so might as well record it, I guess. That's awesome, man. But like that stream of creativity, though, when, when that grabs a hold of you, it's like you have to kind of follow that, man. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Cause, it, you know, I was living for a long time with no inspiration and granted it's cause I was, you know, fucked up out of my mind 24 seven, but I know that that could happen anytime regardless of, of whether I'm fucked up or not. Like people hit creative blocks and I know I'm not superhuman. I'm not immune to that. So while I'm experiencing some inspiration, it would be a disservice to myself not to not to get it down you know you guys are putting a new album out next year i heard i think two days after my birthday oh cool well happy you know that's for your it's for your birthday we're putting that out for sure man (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah it's uh late february 28th uh it's a new ep um it's coming out oh cool yeah maybe we recorded it in uh back in july we finished the recording and uh yeah i'm excited about it you know it's um we took our time recording that one. It wasn't just like one of these blasts of like four weeks, like locked up in a studio. We recorded it kind of like a little bit at a time with a friend of ours out in New Jersey. And uh, yeah, I'm really happy with the way it came out. I kind of liked that, that sort of method as opposed to that, you know, do or die you got this amount of time to, to do the recording and the tracking, you know what I mean? And which is most other yeah. projects I've done have been like that. So that's funny, man. Cause we've done the do or die thing every time. Uh, but the next album we're doing in Tucson with our buddy, Ryan Bram. And we're going to do Monday through Friday, go to Tucson, come back home on the weekends. It's like an hour and a half drive. Um, and just do it that way. And 
that's kind of how we did the last Gatekeeper album, just chunks at a time. And then when we got to the vocals, Chase would do a couple songs and then take some breaks and then do a couple songs, keep his voice fresh on every single song. Yeah, um, that's important. So I'm, yeah, I'm doing that for the first time ever because usually I have to like figure out, and this, this sucks to say, but it's like, all right, which of these eight songs can I do an okay job of singing at 50% vocal health? You know what I mean? Yeah. No, and totally. we'll do that. We'll do that one last. And then this one will be second to last. And it sucks to have to, to do that. And so on the next Spirit of Drift album, I'm, I'm going to, for the first time, be able to have my voice at 100% for every song. So I'm excited about it. I, I agree. I think it's a really cool way of doing things. It seems like it's going to be a lot more enjoyable, you know. Yeah, it's uh, less pressure, and you have like a longer time frame, and and it's just uh, I feel like, well, for specifically for me on this last go through, it's like I had more time to do like a lot of pre production on the vocals, and uh, I got my voice into pretty good shape before I actually got into the studio to um, to record. So, but uh, you know, it's that luxury. I don't know if that we're going to be afforded that the next time. You know what I mean? But this time around, it was really cool. Excellent, man. I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, man. You know, I'll, well, I'll I'll talk to you when we get offline here for a second. Okay. Okay. But All uh, right. but thanks a lot, <laughs> and um, you know, I'm looking forward. I'm going to try to catch you guys when you come through at Exhumed. Is there a Northeast uh, date on that tour? Yeah, there's a bunch. You're you're in New York, right? Yeah, New York, New Jersey, that area. Yeah, I mean, um, man, off the top of my head, I, mean, I think we're playing Brooklyn Bazaar. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, that's perfect. We're doing like the Kerrang Cape hit too, I think. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's, man, it's hard to keep track of all this shit, but I'm pretty sure we're playing Brooklyn Bazaar. That's a cool spot. Have you have you ever been there? Ever played there yeah. before? Yeah. It's a good I place. Saw, I haven't played there, but I saw um, Kralis and somebody else there uh, back in January of last year, I think. Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate you taking time out to talk. Thank you, man. It was an honor to talk to you, finally. Oh, thank you. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Metal Matters, a Gimme Radio weekly podcast. Tune in next week and see what we have in store for you. The show is available on all streaming platforms, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, etc. Also, be sure to check out Gimme Radio, streaming on the web, iOS, or Android for one of the best metal communities, exclusive merch, interviews with artists, and so much more. I'll catch you guys next week. Take care. Yeah.